Welcome back to Killer Instinct, guys, and welcome to the first episode of Halloween. We are carrying on the tradition of Halloween this year on Killer Instinct, just as we did last year. Now, if you are unfamiliar with what Halloween is, Halloween is the one time a year where we post five Killer Instinct episodes back to back leading up to Halloween. So instead of the once a week posts like we usually do, we will be covering five incredibly horrific true crime and paranormal cases leading up to Halloween on October 31st. Halloween is one of my favorite times of the year and I'm really, really happy because I've been getting lots of messages from you guys asking if we're doing Halloween again this year. And to me, that just shows that you guys love it just as much as I do. So I am thrilled to be back and doing it again. Thank you so much for being here and listening. For the first episode of Halloween this year, we are starting out with the brutal and torturous, torturous murder of 17-year-old Junko Furuta. Junko's murder included unspeakable torture that she had to endure, so much so that this case has actually infamously been named 44 Days of Hell for reasons you will soon understand. Now, this was actually one of the most highly requested cases to be covered on Halloween, and when I looked into it, I was shocked that I had never heard of it before. So, let's get right on into it today. Junko was born on January 18th, 1971 in Saitama, Japan. Growing up, Junko was a very straight-edged teenager. She lived with her parents as as well as her two brothers. She had an older brother as well as a younger brother. And what I mean by straight edge is Junko didn't participate in a lot of the activities that kids her age were participating in at this time. She didn't smoke, she didn't drink, and she didn't do drugs. And during the teenage years is when a lot of kids experiment with that. However, Junko never did. She was much more focused on her schoolwork and getting good grades. She attended Yashio Minami High School, where she received very high grades and had a very, very good attendance record. Junko had a part-time job that she worked at after school, and because she was 17, she was graduating high school soon, and she already had plans for what she was going to do once she graduated. Junko had actually accepted a job offer at an electronics retailer. So she already knew what she was going to be doing once she left high school. And something to know about Junko is that she was extremely beautiful. She was a very pretty girl. And because of this, she attracted a lot of attention from boys who liked her in school. Now, even though Junko did get a lot of attention because of her appearance, she definitely didn't let it distract her. Similar to not in engaging in drugs and alcohol. She also didn't really engage in boys and getting a boyfriend. It was not something that was on her radar. She didn't see it as a top priority. She was just very focused on graduating high school. Now, regardless of how Junko felt in not wanting a boyfriend, this did not stop the boys from wanting her. 
Now, one of these boys in particular was named Hiroshi Mayano, and Hiroshi was known to be the bully in high school. He went to the same school as Junko, and from how he was described, it was clear that no one really ever tested him. He was never told no, and people definitely seemed to be afraid of him. He was very intimidating. But there was one person who didn't care about this intimidating reputation that he had, and that was Junko. Hiroshi had actually asked Junko out on a date, however, she had turned him down. Now, this rejection was something that Hiroshi had never experienced before, so it was definitely a different feeling for him and a very big hit to his ego. Not only was Hiroshi known as a school bully, but he was also known to be much more dangerous than that. This was not your typical school bully that we are talking about. Hiroshi had ties with what is known as Yakuza. Now, the equivalent for what the Japanese call Yakuza in English, the equivalent to that would be gangster. So Hiroshi was involved in the gang lifestyle. Yakuza are called a violent group by the police. They are known for their strict codes of conduct and their unconventional ritual practices, such as amputating their left finger. Members of this group are described as males who are heavily tattooed and have slicked back hair. So to get the gist of it, Hiroshi was not a good guy by any means. It was definitely someone that Junko did not want to be around, and someone who wasn't used to not getting their way. But for Junko, rejecting him didn't seem like a huge deal. She was used to getting the attention that she got from boys, and she also knew that her priorities, like I said, were not in the dating world at that time in her life. So once she rejected Hiroshi, she didn't think that much of it after that. So now we move on to November 25th, 1988. Now on this particular night at about 8.30 p.m., Junko was riding her bike home after she had finished working her part-time job after school. Now, whether she was being stalked or she was seen by coincidence has never been clear. However, while she was biking home, Hiroshi was with his friend Nobuharu, and the two of them spotted Junko biking. Hiroshi and Nobuharu came up with a plan that Nobuharu was going to go up to Junko and kick her off of her bicycle. Even though this plan was curated by Hiroshi, his friend obliged and he went over and kicked Junko off of her bike. Now, the second part of this plan was to make Hiroshi seem like her knight in shining armor. The second part of this plan was Hiroshi walking over to Junko and acting like it was just a coincidence that he had just witnessed her being jumped and offered to walk her home. So basically, Hiroshi had set his friend up to make himself look like the good guy and someone that Junko could trust. And this plan actually worked. When Junko saw Hiroshi, she accepted his offer to walk her home, but what she didn't know was that this was not the plan at all. Hiroshi was actually walking Junko to a nearby warehouse, and once Junko figured out what was going on, and once she figured out that she was in trouble, it was already too late. 
On the way to the warehouse, Hiroshi disclosed to Junko about his affiliation in the gang in order to scare her. And once he got her to this abandoned warehouse, Hiroshi raped Junko after he threatened to murder her. After raping her in the warehouse, he then brought her to a hotel that was close by and raped her again there as well. Now, while he was at this hotel with Junko, Hiroshi actually called two of his other friends named Joe and Yasushi. He bragged to them about what he had done to Junko, all while she was right there beside him. This is when Hiroshi's friend Joe told Hiroshi to keep Junko and allow other people to have have a chance to sexually assault her as well. At 3 a.m. on November 26th, Hiroshi and Junko went to a nearby park where they met Joe, Yasushi, and Nobuharu. At this point, it was four guys against one girl, and the boys threatened Junko by telling her that if she tried to escape and if she tried to get away from them, that they knew where her family lived and the gang would be sent after her family to kill them. So that is the scare tactic that they used against Junko, and it worked. Now, before we move on, I just want to clarify something. So there were four men who were all the main perpetrators with Junko. So as we continue and go through everything and all of the details, there's going to be more people that we mention. However, the four men, Hiroshi, Nobuharu, Joe, and Yasushi, are the four main perpetrators who basically organized and took part in all of the torturous acts against Junko, Hiroshi being the main leader. So you had Hiroshi and these three other guys that were his friends. And as we continue, you will hear about the other people who were brought in as well. But I just wanted to make it clear that these were the four main men. I also want to talk about their age really quickly so you understand what we're dealing with here. So at the time of the abduction, Hiroshi was 18 years old. Like I said, him and Junko went to the same high school. Nobuharu was 15 years old, so he was younger than Junko. Joe was 17 years old at the time, and Yasushi was 16 years old at the time. So you're dealing with people that are fairly young. We're talking young teenagers. Now, Junko's family actually waited two days to report her as a missing person, so they contacted the authorities on November 27th, but Junko's kidnappers, these four boys, had thought ahead of this, and they actually forced Junko to call her mother and tell her that she had run away and was staying with a friend. She was also forced to have her mother tell the police to stop their investigation into her disappearance. I can't even fathom what that phone call must have been like for her. However, Junko did this because she was afraid what would happen if she didn't, and she wanted to protect her and her family's lives as they were being put into danger as well. And when Junko told her mom this, her mother actually agreed and believed her, so the search for Junko was called off completely. Now, the night that Junko was kidnapped after being brought to the warehouse and then the hotel, she was then taken to a house that was owned by Nobuharu's parents. This house was the regular hangout spot for Nobuharu and his friends, and in the beginning of Junko being held captive, she was forced to pretend 
that she was Nobuharu's girlfriend. And they did this so Nobuharu's parents wouldn't be suspicious. But somewhere along the line, his parents figured out that this was not the case. However, they said that they were too afraid to report anything to the police because they were afraid of the gang violence that could come along with it if they were to retaliate. So even Nobuharu's parents were so afraid of their son that they didn't say anything or do anything when they realized that this girl was being held captive there and this wasn't his girlfriend. They didn't do anything because they were so afraid of the consequences. Now, when I was doing my research, I wanted to figure out where geographically, location-wise, Junko was being kept and how far that was from her high school because I couldn't figure out the exact town that Junko lived in with her family prior to her abduction. However, I was able to figure out where she went to high school, so I mapped the house that she was being kept at to her high school and it was a 30-minute drive. Throughout the entirety of her captivity, she was only 30 minutes away. Now let's talk about the torture. And I'm going to warn you, this is the worst case of torture that I have ever covered. Reading this was unlike anything that I have ever felt before. So the reason that this case is referred to as 44 days of hell is because that's exactly what it was. Junko was held captive for 44 days, and during those 44 days, she experienced unspeakable suffering. Throughout her time in captivity, Junko had been sexually assaulted, raped, and tortured by a total of over a hundred men. And the initial four men that we had talked about raped her at least over a hundred times. There were times where Junko was raped by 12 different men in one day. Junko was also beaten, she was starved, she was hung from the ceiling and basically used as a human punching bag as these young men beat her. They hit her in the face with golf clubs and smashed her face into cement floors. They dropped barbells on her stomach, she was forced to eat bugs and drink her own urine. She was also raped with foreign objects, including a bottle, an iron bar, scissors, fireworks, and a lit light bulb. They burned her eyelids with hot wax, they burned her private area with cigarettes, and during all of this torture, it was said that Junko would slip in and out of consciousness because at a certain point, your body just shuts down as a defense mechanism. Your body will knock you out unconscious after you experience so much suffering and torture as a defense mechanism. However, every time she would go unconscious, these young men would dunk her head into cold water to wake her up so she would be awake for all of her torture. Now, because of all of this torture, it didn't take long for Junko's body to just begin to shut down. After a while, she was unable to breathe through her nose, she wasn't able to keep any food or water down, and if you're wondering if there was ever a time where Junko tried to escape or get help, there was one time while these men were sleeping that Junko attempted to call the police, but Hiroshi unfortunately woke up in the middle of her doing this, and they punished her by setting her feet on fire with lighter fluid. The police ended up calling the number back, however, Hiroshi told the police that the original call was a mistake and that nothing was wrong. 
Junko had severe leg burns that left her unable to walk for 20 days, and after a certain point, she wasn't able to hold anything in her hands because they had crushed and broken all of her bones. Now remember, when Junko was kidnapped, it was in November, so it was winter, and there were cold temperatures. However, Junko was forced to sleep outside on the balcony. No blanket, no jacket, nothing. Now, 16 days into her captivity, a boy named Koichi was at the house where Junko was being kept at, and he allegedly felt like he was being bullied into raping her. So basically, he was being peer pressured into raping Junko by his friends. Now, when he left the house and went home, he ended up telling his brother about what had happened, and his brother told their parents. And these parents, rightfully so, contacted the authorities. They contacted the authorities and told them everything that their son had said. And once they got the call, two police officers were sent to Nobuharu's house. And when Nobuharu answered the door, he just completely denied everything. He told them that there was no girl inside, that that's crazy talk, and this must have all just been one big giant misunderstanding. Now, without even looking through the house. They didn't step foot in the house. The police believed Nobuharu and actually declined an invitation to search through the house. Okay, we're going to take a short break, but we will be right back with more of the Killer Instinct podcast. Imagine an app designed to make you use it less. Seems a little counterproductive, right? Well, Apartments.com's Instant Alert feature works exactly that way. Instead of scanning rental listings a million times a day, simply set and forget your search to whatever you're looking for in a place and let Apartments.com do the rest. From pet-friendly apartments to balconies to in-unit ACs, Apartments.com's powerful search tools let you know when the perfect combination of features you're seeking is listed. So you don't have to power through rental descriptions one by one. With more rental listings than anywhere else, Apartments.com Apartments.com's instant alerts mean that you can spend less time looking for the perfect place and more time on just doing you. Apartments.com, the place to find a place. All right, you guys, welcome back. So to prove his innocence, Nobuharu basically told them, yeah, come in if you want. You can search around if you want, but the police didn't think it was necessary, so they declined doing that. And ultimately, they just left. Now, these police officers received such incredible backlash for this because this was day 16 out of 44 days that Junko was tortured. So if they had gone into the house and done a quick search, they might have been able to save Junko from her 28 more days of torture. And just so you guys know, these officers were later fired from failing to follow procedure and protocol because proper protocol says that they were supposed to go in that house and look. However, they just decided that it wasn't important enough to do that and they didn't see enough probable cause to do that. 
Now, there were times where Junko basically just begged the men torturing her to kill her and get it over with. However, they were too in love with the torture that they were putting her through. They got off on watching her just absolutely suffer. Now, because of this and because of the brutality of her torture, it obviously began to have a serious effect on Junko's appearance. Her face was barely recognizable at this point because it was so swollen and her body was actually given off a rotten smell and this caused the four boys to lose sexual interest in Junko and when this happened they decided that they needed a new victim. So this is when they ended up kidnapping a different 19 year old girl and gang raped her. This girl was also on her way home from work when she was kidnapped and this occurred in December of the same year, so just a month after Junko's abduction. Now, these boys did not end up murdering or keeping this 19-year-old girl hostage. They ultimately ended up releasing her, so that was the difference between her and Junko. Now, we move on to January 4th, 1989. Now, on this day, the four boys challenged Junko to a game of solitaire, which she won. Now, her winning this game sparked a very, very angry reaction from the boys, who as a result beat her with an iron barbell. They then kicked and punched her. They placed short candles on her eyelids and burned them so the hot wax would come off and drip onto her eyes. They dropped an iron exercise ball on her stomach and they continued to pour lighter fluid onto her thighs, arms, face, and stomach and then set her on fire. Junko allegedly attempted to stop the fire at first. However, over time, she just gradually became unresponsive. This last attack lasted for about two hours, and after that, Junko succumbed to her wounds and died that same day. About 24 hours after Junko's death, Nobuharu's brother, who, mind you, lived in the same house as them and knew everything that was going on, but never once tried to stop it or contact the police, the next day, he called Nobuharu and told him that Junko appeared to be dead, and this is when the boys started panicking. So after they had beaten her to death the last time, they ended up leaving her not knowing that she was dead. And it was Nobuharu's brother that called them to tell him that she was. The boys panicked and thought that they could possibly get caught for this, so they tried to figure out a way to dispose of Junko's body, which they did. They ended up wrapping her body in blankets and shoving it into a travel bag. They then placed her body in a 55-gallon drum and filled it with wet cement. And then at about 8 o'clock p.m. on January 5th, they disposed of the drum with Junko's body inside of it into a cement truck in Tokyo. Now, about a little over two weeks after the disposal of Junko's body, on January 23, 1989, Hiroshi and Joe were actually arrested, but not for what you may think. Hiroshi and Joe were arrested in the connection with the 19-year-old girl that they had kidnapped and gang-raped back in December. A little over two months after they were arrested, on March 29th, two police officers interrogated them 
And here is where the slip-up happened. When Hiroshi was being interrogated, he was already under the impression that authorities knew about Junko and that Joe had confessed to the murder of Junko. So Hiroshi, while he was being interrogated, came forward and told police where they could find Junko's body. Now, this completely threw police through a loop because they had absolutely no idea about Junko at that time, and they weren't questioning Hiroshi about Junko at all. So basically, Hiroshi confessed to something that police didn't even know about and really threw himself under the bus on that one. Nevertheless, authorities obviously went and looked into the area that Hiroshi said Junko's body was, and that is when they discovered the drum containing her body in cement the following day. Junko was identified through fingerprints, and it was after Junko's body was discovered that Yasushi, Nobuharu, and Nobuharu's brother were also arrested for her murder. Now, similar to the James Bulger case we covered, the identities of the four boys were kept from the public. Their names were not released because the boys were technically juveniles at the time of the crime, so the court sealed their names, which you guys know how I feel about that, but you can let me know what you think on that. And if you need a refresher, I personally believe that there is absolutely no need to be protecting the identity of these monsters who have gone out of their way to conduct the most brutal torture you've ever heard of. I don't think there's any reason to be defending or protecting them at all. And I'm not the only one who thinks this because there was a journalist from a magazine who actually published all four of the boys' identities identities and stated that given the severity of the crime, the boys did not deserve to have their identity sealed. So I don't know how he was able to come across their identities. However, he was able to do so and he released them to the public. Following their arrest, all four boys pled guilty to committing bodily injury that resulted in death rather than murder. How and why? I am unsure, and because they were all underage when the crime was committed, they were also tried as juveniles. However, they were eventually faced with adult sentences. But I think you guys might be surprised at the length of their sentences because right now, each one of them is out of jail, which is absolutely terrifying. Hiroshi was sentenced to 17 years in prison, which was then raised to 20 years in prison after he tried to appeal his case. Now, Hiroshi's family ended up sending Junko's parents $425,000 for what had happened to their daughter, which I don't really know what to think about that. I guess it's better than nothing, however absolutely doesn't even come close to what they should have had. They should have their daughter, not $425,000. Nobuharu was originally sentenced to only four to six years. However, that was then raised to five to nine years. And Nobuharu's brother, like I said, he was arrested, but he was ultimately not charged, even though he was fully aware of what was going on. And the parents who also knew what was going on whose house it was in 
were not charged either. Yasushi was sentenced to five to seven years and Joe was sentenced to eight years in juvenile prison and then was released in August 1999. Now, since their release, some of the men have changed their last names. Hiroshi changed his name to Hiroshi Yokoyama. Joe changed his name to Joe Kamisaku. And it was said that when Joe was released, he went on to brag about his role in the torture of Junko. Now, in July of 2004, Joe was arrested again for assaulting a man who he thought was sleeping with his girlfriend. He tracked this man down, he beat him, and he shoved him into a truck. He then drove him to his mother's bar and beat him there for hours and threatened to kill him. He was sentenced to seven years for this, however, has since been released. And something else that's just absolutely sickening is that Joe's mother has allegedly vandalized Junko's grave, stating that Junko ruined her son's life, which just makes me so mad I can't even handle it. Now, as far as Nobuharu goes, after he was released, he moved in with his mother and has not worked a job since. In 2018, he was arrested again for attempted murder after beating a man with a metal rod and slashing his throat with a knife. Why these men are not in prison is absolutely beyond me. Hiroshi was also rearrested for fraud in January 2013. However, because of insufficient evidence, he was released only a month later. Now, why these men are not arrested after what I had told you earlier about the torture that she endured is absolutely, again, beyond me. I don't understand it. I don't think I will ever understand it. And I want to talk about some other things that Junko endured while she was tortured and what the autopsy discovered as well. So like I mentioned earlier, Junko was forced to sleep outside in the winter and she was also forced to sleep inside of a freezer. She was also stabbed with sewing needles in her chest area. Her body had been mutilated. Her nose was filled with so much blood that she could only breathe through her mouth. And closer to her death, her injuries were so severe that it took her over an hour to crawl downstairs to use the bathroom. She also had severely damaged eardrums and her brain size had been extremely reduced. Junko's injuries and torture was so severe that during the court proceedings, a couple people in the courtroom actually fainted while listening to the details of the brutal rape and torture. I also want to mention again, just in case it wasn't clear, that Junko wasn't only raped by these four men. During the autopsy, it was discovered that there was DNA from countless other men as well. They just weren't able to track down all of them. Now, you may be wondering, just as I've mentioned it multiple times here, why these men were given such lenient sentences. And the only thing that I was able to discover through my research, the only possible explanation that people had for this was that they were protected by the juvenile law because of their gang affiliation. I'm not sure why that would make them more protected. 
However, that has been the explanation as to why their sentences were so minimal. Now, as far as Junko goes, her funeral was held on April 2nd, 1989, and her future employer actually gave her parents the uniform that Junko would have worn had she started working there, and the uniform was placed inside of her casket. The principal of her high school also presented a graduation certificate that was given to her parents. As far as the public and what they thought about this case, once it was released into the media, people were absolutely outraged. Everyone all over the world heard about this case, and there has actually been multiple movies based off of Junko's story. Now again, this is by far the worst case of torture that I have ever heard about. It is absolutely sickening to me, and while reading it, it was really hard to get through. After going through these cases, and I'm sure after listening to them so many times as a listener out there, listening to a podcast, whether it's mine or someone else's, you kind of not become immune to it. However, once you read so many different articles and so many different stories, it sometimes doesn't hit you as hard anymore, which is a blessing and a curse. However, this one was really, really tough to get through. I kept visualizing it all and thinking about how Junko must have felt knowing she was only 30 minutes away from her high school and having to call her mom and tell her to stop searching for her all while she was being absolutely tortured. It's just, it's baffling. So I am very interested just to hear your guys' thoughts on this. I know there's no theories that come along with this one, but I'm really interested to hear your guys' thoughts. As always, you can email me at killerinstinctpodcast at gmail.com. Again, that's just killerinstinctpodcast at gmail.com. And with that being said, you guys, that is the first episode of Halloween. Thank you guys so much for tuning in to the first episode. I'm excited for the episodes to continue continue. So instead of saying, I will see you next week, I will see you tomorrow. It's pretty cool. So I will be back here tomorrow with a brand new case for you guys. Stay tuned. Make sure you're subscribed so you get the notification. And with that being said, I'll talk to you guys tomorrow. Happy Halloween.